from Luke chapter 4, verses 21 to 30. Then Jesus began to say to all in the synagogue in Nazareth, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove Jesus out of the town, and led him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But Jesus passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. So we're going to start today talking about Jeremiah from our first reading. Jeremiah is a young pastor's kid when the word of the Lord comes to him. God declares to Jeremiah that God has known since before Jeremiah was born that he would be a prophet of the Lord, someone who speaks truth about God to God's people. And Jeremiah's immediate reaction, Ah, my master, my lord, truthfully, I do not know how to speak because I'm only a child. When I was reading our scripture for today, I had a flashback to the first time someone cornered me at church to ask if I would volunteer for something. I think it was to usher for a coming Sunday. My response was something like, ah, yes, ushering. I don't totally know how to do that. And really, you know, I'm just sort of only a visitor. Technically, I was a member. I was confirmed there. But I had just returned after years of not being in the church, and so I didn't fully know if I was a member or not. And also, I really did not know how to usher. My experience of volunteering for worship sort of ended at acolyting. I knew there was stuff with bulletins and maybe offering, but that was about it. I also didn't know that ushers apparently count how many people are in worship that Sunday. And that was something I found out because the volunteer coordinator, similar to God speaking to Jeremiah, basically just told me, You'll do fine. And so I ushered, and at the end of worship, one of the people who was sitting near me said, hey, what was the count today? And I looked at them like, oh, was that part of my job? <laughs> Sometimes we want to quantify ourselves into only something. Sometimes it's an excuse, like my excuse of being only a visitor at my home congregation Sometimes it's simply to lower expectations. Back when I was playing my accordion more frequently, I was asked to lead our children's ministry and a few Christmas songs at a church I worked at. And I agreed, but I warned them, 
I'm really only a novice, so at least they knew what they were getting. And sometimes we use the I am only because we really believe it. Sometimes I'm only a volunteer, I'm only one person, I'm only. That's our truth, and that's the best way we can describe it for someone else. We usually use this phrase as a way to say no to something, to decline an offer or a request. I'm only a friend, a teacher, a spouse, an insert word here. We don't quantify ourselves in that way as a positive thing very often. Because when we're saying, I'm only, we're not just saying that. Like Jeremiah wasn't saying, I'm only a boy. In Jeremiah's statement, he's also saying to God, I'm not experienced enough for this. I'm not skilled enough, not knowledgeable enough, maybe even I'm not special or worthy enough for this calling. I am only is another way to say I am not enough. When Jesus speaks at the synagogue in Nazareth in our reading today, Jesus has just finished reading from the book of Isaiah. As he finishes the verse from scripture, he says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and everyone is amazed. They see him as only Jesus of Nazareth, Joseph's son, but in that moment, they are amazed by him. Maybe something like having a son or a daughter of your congregation come back years later to read or sing. They think his words are gracious and wonderful. For a moment, they see Jesus as more than only a son of Joseph. For a moment, they see Jesus as enough, as experienced enough to speak about scripture, as gifted enough to heal their sick. For a moment. But Jesus keeps talking, and he presupposes what they're going to say. He says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do you hear also in your hometown the things you did in Capernaum? Probably the very same thoughts they were actually thinking in their amazement at Jesus' speaking. And then Jesus brings more of God's truth. That it's not only the hometown that will reap the benefits. It's not only God's chosen people, but all people. He points to scripture, to Elijah providing for the widow in Sidon, to, the, to Elisha healing the Syrian man. Jesus' sermon becomes one of inclusion, a call to care for those on the outside, too. And I wonder if that rage that filled those who gathered was the anger that fear and insecurity can create. Jesus shares that the widow at Zarephath was not only a Greek woman, but because of who she was, because she was a Greek woman, she was worth aiding and caring for. That Naaman was not only a Syrian man, but because of who he was, he was someone that God was working through and God's power through Elisha healed. Including these outsiders, these people normally excluded, fills the formerly amazed people in the synagogue with rage. With rage. Because they hear this and they quantify that they're only from Nazareth. And maybe they are scared that their faith is no longer enough if this Jesus, son of Joseph, is right, if prophets can't be heard in their hometowns. Maybe their insecurities find them feeling like they're not chosen enough, not worthy enough, not special enough for the healing and care for the salvation that Jesus says God is bringing. Even if that's not exactly what Jesus says. He says that prophets can't be heard 
in their hometown, but he doesn't say that healing, care, and salvation aren't coming to Nazareth, too. He just says it's also for those previously excluded. But their rage has put Jesus back into the only Joseph's son category for them. His sermon is not placating enough for them. It's not flattering enough. It doesn't make them feel better about themselves or the work they're doing. And so they try to throw Jesus off of a cliff, which seems like a little bit of an extreme reaction. A little bit. But sometimes, as many prophets of the past and present have found, preaching truth about God and God's people can bring extreme rejection. I wonder if that's part of Jeremiah's fears around being only a boy, being not enough to be God's prophet, because when Jeremiah responds to God's statement, when he says, I'm only a boy, God speaks back. And God says, do not say, I am only a boy. Do not say, I am only, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. Do not be afraid of the rejection of the extreme reactions to God's truth. Do not say that you are only anything. You are a boy, and it's you, your whole person, that I have called. God says to Jeremiah, I have known you since before you were born. And even then, I knew you would be a prophet. I have always known you. You are more than enough, and you are not alone in this. I wonder if Jesus was thinking about God's words to Jeremiah as he was driven out of his hometown and led to the brow of a hill to be hurled off of a cliff. I wonder if he reminded himself that he was not only Joseph's son, if he reminded himself not to be afraid, if he felt God with him there to deliver him. Because once they get up to the cliff, Jesus just walks to the crowd and goes on his way. Like literally the scripture says, but Jesus passed through the midst of them and went on his way. A pretty calm reaction to murderous rage. But Jesus knows the truth. And that truth, God's word, God's salvation, God's grace, God's love is for everyone, and that truth is worth rejoicing in. I mentioned this before, but we're continuing to read through 1 Corinthians, and the Apostle Paul is desperately trying to get the Corinthian church out of their insecurities. Their only. They're not enough. So they can actually focus on their calling as a church. They're kind of going through something similar to the synagogue in Nazareth, but without the cliff hurling. Their own insecurities are coming out and looking at others in their congregation as only something. The person who has prophetic powers looks down upon the one who can only speak in tongues. The member with all the faith sees his sister as only having knowledge. They've quantified themselves down into only their gifts. But they forgot the point of all their spiritual gifts. The point of Jesus' words, the synagogue in Nazareth, the point of Jeremiah's prophetic teachings, it's about God, particularly about God's love. Our reading from 1 Corinthians is often read at weddings, a beautiful description of love. And if we look a bit closer, I'm sure many of you have heard this before, that the love that Paul is talking about is not a romantic one. It's not even between friends and family. It's agape love. God's love. Paul is trying to get the church to understand that all their gifts mean nothing if they're not participating in God's love. 
God's love is patient, kind, not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. God's love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. God's love rejoices in the truth. God's love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. God's love never ends. Paul points out that we know only in part. We are looking into a mirror dimly. That God's love is so big, so deep, so wide, that we can't fully know or understand it yet. But that even in our partial understanding, God has fully known us all along. Just like God knew Jeremiah, that Jeremiah was a boy, but also more than only a boy. Just like Jesus knows God, that God would be with him as he passed through the raging crowd at the cliff. Just like Paul knew, even when he says he only knows in part, even Paul knows that through God he has been fully known and loved. We tend to quantify ourselves, especially when we are afraid that we are only something. That we are not or don't have enough of something. We tend to push back against offers, requests, calling, because of that insecurity, because of our stress, because sometimes we really are only one person and it all seems like too much. Sometimes our quantifying comes as excuses, sometimes to lower expectations, and sometimes because we truly believe we aren't able. Maybe, like Jeremiah, we find ourselves turning down opportunities to serve God and our neighbor because we worry that we're not enough. Maybe, like those listening in the synagogue, we find ourselves filled with rage because including others makes us worry that we won't have enough for ourselves. Maybe, like the church in Corinth, we find ourselves ripping on our insecurities and forgetting about the greatest truth worth rejoicing in, God's love for us and for the world. For all of our onlys. For all of our not-enoughs. For all of our fear, our rage, our insecurities. Jesus passes through the midst of them on his way to the cross. Jesus goes to the cross for the sin of the world because God fully knows each and every one of us, knows all the parts of our identities, all the pieces of ourselves, and God doesn't see any of us as only anything except enough. Jesus dies because God's love bears all things. And this love brings healing, care, and salvation. Jesus rises from the dead because God's love never ends. And this love is for you, for me. This love is for those on the inside and those on the outside. God's love is for all. And this radical love is meant for us to participate in. Without God's love, our gifts, our talents, our everything is, as Paul says, nothing. As we participate in God's love, we answer God's call to share God's truth with those we meet. As Jesus points us to, we are called to care, to provide, to heal, and to share love and grace. We are called to care for the woman without food, to see her as more than only a person in need, but to see her in all of her truth. We are called to provide healing and comfort for the man who is sick, to see him as more than only a disease, but to see him as a beloved child of God. We are called to welcome those on the outside, to see them as more than only strangers, but to see their differences and rejoice in God's variety of gifts. 
I pray that God can convince us as God convinced Jeremiah, as Paul tried to convince the church in Corinth, as Jesus tries to convince the synagogue in Nazareth. I pray that God convinces us that together we can answer God's call of love and that we can rejoice in this truth. We are called children of God. And by the great and unending love that God brings to us through Jesus, we are called to see ourselves and our neighbors for who we are, for who others are. We are called to see each other as more than only anything. Because through the grace of God, each and every one of us together, we are enough. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.